Well, I invite you to turn with me tonight in your Bibles to Hosea. We'll be looking tonight at chapter 12, but there is uh, some debate as to whether uh, chapter 12 uh, really begins in chapter 11, verse 12, and, and that's what I'm inclined to think. I remind you that uh, every word of your Bible is breathed out by God, inspired, it is infallible. Uh, that is not true of the chapter breaks and the verse numbers, which were added uh, much later, and I am very thankful for them. I'm very glad I don't have a, I'm glad I have a Bible with chapters, numbers, and verses. Very helpful for my own personal use and for preaching and teaching. Um, but they were added much later. So uh, sometimes there is in your Bible, sometimes, rarely, but on occasion, we're reading through and we think, you know, not so sure that the chapter break was best placed there. So here tonight, I want to begin in verse 12. Last Sunday night, I ended in verse 11. And we're actually going to study tonight chapter 11, verse 12, through chapter 13, verse 1. The same issue occurs right around chapter 13. The question is, does verse 1 go with chapter 12 or should it go with chapter 13? And um, it's really, in that, uh, in the scheme of things, it's not a huge issue whether you it's a transition verse, so just want to explain that we'll begin reading in chapter 11, verse 12. This is God's word. And I'll be reading out of the Legacy Standard Version. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, says the Lord, and the house of Israel with deceit. And Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He abounds in falsehood and destruction. Moreover, he cuts a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. And Yahweh has a contention with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will cause everything to return to him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity, he wrestled with God Indeed, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his name of remembrance. Therefore, return to your God. Keep loving kindness and justice, and hope in your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are deceptive balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. But I have been Yahweh your God since the land of Egypt, as in the days of the appointed festival. And I have spoken to the prophets, and I made visions abound. And by the hand of the prophets, I gave parables. Is there wickedness in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the field of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet, Yahweh brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and cause his reproach to Returned to him. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. 
He lifted himself up in Israel, but through Baal he became guilty and died. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you again this evening after hearing the word of your servant Zechariah this morning. And we come this evening to hear the words you gave to your servant Hosea. We again uh, remind ourselves in your presence that your servant Paul said that all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable. And so we come tonight, our Father, to a portion of your word that you know is is not as easy for us. Uh, None of us in this room are are fluent in biblical Hebrew. Um, We can't read it um, fluently and um, it's challenging for us, and even if we did, we're removed from your servant Hosea by uh, approaching almost 3,000 years. And so there are numerous challenges for us, but we thank you that your word, even translated into English, is sufficiently clear for us to know you and to know the timeless principles that you have for us. We ask that you would bless us tonight as we continue to learn about you and your relentless love for your people. We ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I stated in my prayer to our God, um, it it can be challenging to study what we sometimes call the minor prophets. There's nothing minor about them as though they're less important than the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But they are challenging. This is one of those chapters where if you're reading along in your Bible reading and it's early in the morning and there are some things that are clear to you, but it's really hard to follow. It's hard to see how it fits together. And I just want to encourage you that um, that is the case even for biblical scholars, that there are portions of God's word where the Hebrew is in poetry, it is... uh, it is challenging, and even among biblical scholars, sometimes there's, there's uh, great discussions about, you know, what, what the flow of the argument is. But we certainly, therefore, don't say, well, what can we glean from this? There is certainly enough that is clear. And what is clear here in this section is, again, that God, the covenant God of Israel, is bringing a lawsuit against Uh, his covenant people. And that's in verse 2. Yahweh, that's his covenant name, and notice in verse uh, 5 that's asserted, Yahweh is his name of remembrance. It's why partly I'm so thankful for this uh, new translation. I I think it's helpful. But it is the key I want you to point you to is verse 2. This is a lawsuit. God is bringing a formal covenant lawsuit against the people of Israel. He's declaring his own righteousness, and once again, he's exposing their guilt. Now, this is challenging for us a little bit as we go along in preaching, too, because as we preach through a book, uh, we are hearing God's words to Israel through Hosea in a series of maybe months, and uh, these messages would have spanned over uh, Hosea's ministry. They're representative of God's continual pleading with his people to return to him. And we even find that in this verse, in this passage, verse six, return to your God. He's bringing a lawsuit, but he's not a God who is, is, uh, you know, engaging in some kind of childish argument. His heart is broken. Uh, 
And his, even as he brings forth a lawsuit, even as he's going to expose their blood guiltiness, he is still offering grace. Return to your God, verse 6. Keep loving kindness. There's that Hebrew word hesed, which is that word for love, covenant love, grace, kindness. It was the word that most encapsulated God's love for his people and the love that his people are to have for God. And so he's bringing forward a lawsuit, but even the intent of the lawsuit is to stir his people of old, and certainly tonight we too are in need again of this call. Uh, maybe we're here tonight, we're saying, boy, we, we've heard this, I think we heard this last week. I think we heard this maybe the, the few weeks before when we were Hosea. I don't know. I was, uh, maybe this will help. I don't, maybe this won't help at all. This is how my mind works. I was, I went for a short walk in the woods uh, this afternoon. What a beautiful day. And um, there are uh, parts of, of the property that uh, we now own was my parents. And, and uh, it's not a lot of acreage, but it's, uh, it's enough that I, I, over the years, didn't necessarily know every part of it. But as I make trails on it, and as I cut down a few trees and clear the paths. I, I, as I walk over that territory, I become more familiar with it. Um, I, I recognize rocks. I recognize aspects of the terrain that I, I didn't before that weren't clear to me. One thought I had this afternoon, walking in the woods, I had no revelations. That's what I'm not revealing. But as we go through Hosea, these challenging parts of the Old Testament, one of the benefits is that we just become a little more accustomed to the lay of the land. And I hope that's helping with you. Uh, I hope that's happening, that, that as, you're, as you're walking through these various passages, you're starting to hear some of the similar themes. And one of them is, and this has struck me, our God is very serious about how loyal we are to him. I, I mean, I, I know that up here. But one of the things Hosea is impressing upon me, wow, I, I mean, God really wants the totality of my loyal love and my loyalty. He, he's really not content with just kind of a confession, showing up at church, doing my job. I, he, he really isn't, he's not okay with that. He, he's, in the image, remember Hosea was asked, uh, called by God to marry an unfaithful spouse? I mean, it's that jealous kind of love of a husband for, a, a loving husband for his wife. So God loves his people and he's calling us to return to him. So here's the pattern. You'll see it. You'll see God brings a charge and then he's going to bring a witness of guilt and then he's going to issue uh, uh, often a, uh, sometimes a call of mercy. You'll see, you'll see uh, instances of mercy along the way. But first in verses chapter 11, verse 12, we see the charge. Ephraim, that's another name for Israel in the north. And this is Hosea's ministry primarily was to the kingdom in the north, the 10 tribes. Um, that would be kind of where right now you're hearing in the news in the north on the border with Syria where the Hezbollah may come down, that's this territory right there. There we are. And Ephraim was one of the significant uh, tribes there. And so Israel in the north sometimes was just called Ephraim. 
And God is saying that uh, as far as the charge, they, they not only are unfaithful to God, that's part of the charge here, but they literally surround God with lies. We're very aware now in the news right now that Israel is surrounding Gaza with its military, and understandably so. Understandably so. Ephraim of old surrounded God with lies. In other words, saying, oh yes, God, we love you. Oh yes, God, you are our God. But it was all lies because they were full of deceit. And it wasn't just Israel in the north. Notice verse 12, Judah too. Even in the days of the ministry of Hosea, much earlier than the days of Zechariah, this is before the exile, this is even before Assyria has overrun. So this is several hundred years before Zechariah. Even then, Judah was also unruly against God. And notice the name of God there, the Holy One who is faithful. God is utterly faithful to his people. And, and not only was Ephraim in the north unfaithful and surrounding God with lies, but in their unfaithfulness, they were an example of absolute folly and stupidity. The wind here is described, um, it is a hot uh, desert kind of wind that would come upon uh, Israel. I can't remember the name. There's, there's a name for these winds in Southern California. We, we were there in 2010 and uh, they just come through and they dry out the entire area. And that's why we hear of the wildfires and, you know, the hot winds. I mean, it really, the wind blows and it blows and it blows. And at first, maybe you think, oh, that's nice and warm. But then at days after days after days after wind starts to drive you a little bit nutty and uh, it dries everything out and then things get on fire. In other words, that hot desert wind really was of no good. And yet Ephraim, just like someone would try to go around with their mouth trying to take a jump out of the hot desert wind that does nothing. That's what Ephraim's going after other gods and idols was like. Feeding on the wind. Pursuing the east wind continually. Not just one little effort or others, but a constant, steady pursuing of absolute vanity and stupidity. I really wish... I really wish that I could point the finger and say, Ephraim, those stupid, dumb people of old. I don't know anything what that's like, but I can't. Maybe you can't. I don't know about you, but in my heart, my mind, I've put my faith and trust in a whole lot of other things except God. Still trust in my ability. How do you know if you're trusting in your ability? Here's, oh, you want, you want a brutal question? How's your prayer life? Your prayer life is a gauge, and mine, our prayer life, is the gauge of how much we're trusting in me, myself, and me, or we're trusting in God. So if we're trusting in our God or just fate or circumstances or our government or somebody else to do something to provide for things. It's just like chasing after the wind, looking to other things beside God to provide for us and to, provide, and to be faithful provide what we need. Israel, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, an example of this, they were cutting covenants with Assyria. In other words, looking to other people, other entities to provide what God has promised to provide. And so, charge here of unfaithfulness. Well, as a witness to their guilt, God brings forward a very uh, uh, old witness, in fact, by this time, he's dead. But uh, though he is dead, still he speaks, and his name is Jacob. 
And uh, remember this character, Jacob? Remember he and remember Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob, that rascal? Uh, we learn of him if 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 uh, if you want to read later in around Genesis chapter thirty and thirty one, thirty two. Maybe we'll look at thirty two in a few moments. But Jacob is the very man whose name was changed into what? Israel. So Ephraim, Israel's namesake, Jacob, is brought forward by God as a witness. And here, uh, Jacob is uh, being uh, put forward in, in his action and behavior in contrast to Israel's behavior. And so Israel is called Jacob, verse 2, and that's right. Israel's origin is in in Jacob, this man, it's through Jacob that God formed the nation. But as for Jacob, uh, Jacob, at least, um, he turned to God. I mean, at least Jacob did something in, the, in verse 3, even in the womb. I mean, Jacob knew enough in the womb to take his brother by the heel and to hang on. In other words, J- Jacob at least made a little bit of effort. Uh, in fact, his name has to do with that, has to do with his uh, effort of grabbing his brother by the heel. And not only did he grab his brother by the heel, but later in life, in Genesis chapter 32, as he was returning to the land, he wrestled with God. Indeed, he wrestled, verse 4, with the angel and prevailed. He wept. And he wasn't just weeping because his hip hurt. Remember in that scene, the angel of the Lord wrestled uh, with uh, Jacob. And of course, you know, don't picture a scene where uh, the angel of God is, is really struggling. <laughs> That's not what's going on. He's, but it's, it's a scene, an amazing, mysterious scene of, of Jacob not letting him go, you remember, until he would bless Jacob. He sought the, the angel of God's favor. He found him at Bethel. Um, that's, uh, that's painful because Bethel by now is uh, one of the places where the golden calves, these false calves, are worshipped. Bethel means house of El, house of God. And it had received its name by Jacob when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Remember he'd seen that scene, the ladder coming out of heaven with the angels coming down and going up and, and so forth. So God is referring back to Jacob, Israel's namesake, Ephraim's namesake, their founder, and at least as much of a rascal as he may have been, he was far from being a perfect man, that even in his sinfulness and and in his struggles, at least he wrestled with God, at least he sought God, at least he sought the blessing of God, he turned to God, but not so with Ephraim. Eh, just kind of continue on. No seeking after God. No looking to God. Verse 5, even Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his name of remembrance. That, that's a, as an aside, if you're struggling with why this translation uses that, that that's an indication there um, and I really need to do a sermon at some point on that whole subject of translation and Yahweh. But, but notice there that that name, those four consonants in Hebrew, that is God's name of remembrance, the God of hosts. And so based on calling forward 
uh, stating Ephraim's guilt, then calling for Jacob as a witness, God calls his people, verse 6, therefore, therefore, based on the fact of your guilt, therefore, based on the fact of Jacob's example of seeking God himself, return to your God, keep loving kindness and justice, and hope in your God continually. Uh, that's encouraging because sometimes we don't know what to do with passages like this. So, you know, what does this mean? How do I apply this to my life? And right there is a real key. I already gave one. We seek God. We pray to God. We ask God's blessing. We look to him like Jacob looked to God, but also we hope in our God. So one of the ways we express our covenant faithfulness to God and to Christ is in these dark days, and they are difficult dark days, that we make sure that we believe every single word that God has said about his sovereignty and Lord of the times and Lord of history and the return of our Christ and that we hope continually in him. That's part of our covenant faithfulness. Hope continually in him. Now in verse 7, we go into the the pattern again. Now God brings forward another charge. Some of your translations may have here a Canaanite. I don't don't know. Does Does anybody have that? Translation there in verse 7, a Canaanite. Yeah, Elizabeth, it might be uh, King James, but that's because it's the same word, Canaanite merchant. And there's a play on that word there. God is essentially calling Ephraim a bunch of Canaanites. And they have traded in corruption and deception. Verse 7, whose hands are deceptive balances. He loves to oppress uh, they, verse 8, they, this, was, this was a time in, under, uh, in the day of Hosea, and we remember in the Jeroboam II, there was a period of time when Assyria was distracted, they backed off, and there was a little time of flourishing and of great wealth just before God brought the hammer, and Samaria was crushed. And so they took by their circumstances, look, we've become rich, and we have wealth, and and, um, uh, and notice verse 8, smug self-righteousness. Now, now, this is really hard, but this characterizes all false religion. This is Islam, false righteousness. Somehow thinking that somehow by your good works, you can somehow be made right and obtain heaven. Uh, This is uh, Hinduism, this is Buddhism, this is everyone assuming I'm really not that bad. And this is true of Israel of old, and this is by and large true of the modern state of Israel today. This is true of much of uh, Christianity in America, certainly liberal progressive Christianity. I mean, there's no sin, we're okay, God loves us, everybody's in. Surely we have no iniquity. And sadly, it's increasingly true of the evangelical church. We have no sin, downplaying of the atonement of Christ, the death of Christ, focusing on felt needs and counseling. Nothing wrong with counseling, I'm just saying. The real need that men and women have is not for their mental health. The real need that men and women have is to be saved from judgment and hell. And so, whether it be anywhere, wherever it is found, false religion, like Ephraim of old, is characterized by smug self-righteousness. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. 
And again, sadly, that is largely what characterizes the state of Israel, whether it be the secular Jews. There are many, many secular Jews who are just like secular people in the United States. They're godless. They happen to be Jewish, but, you know, maybe they recognize some of their, you know, religion, but they really have no faith in God. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox, and what are they trusting in? They actually don't even have a temple right now. There's no even sacrifices to remove, and yet still there is this smug self-righteousness. I'm not saying all of them are obnoxious. You know, I've met some very kind uh, uh, Jewish, conservative Jewish families. But at the end of the day, there's a trust that we're surely not so bad that God will somehow have to judge us for our sins. There's still a denial of the need that God declares in Isaiah 53 of one who will bear our iniquities. And so wherever it's found, this kind of self-righteousness is utter folly. And God brings it forward as a charge. They are deceptive, they're guilty of sin, and yet they still... Uh, insist that they are without sin. Interesting, though, after bringing forward that, that hard, serious charge, which is true, God again, verse 9, states his own faithfulness. It's one of the patterns here. God stating Israel's guilt and then his faithfulness. And not only in verse 9 does he state his faithfulness, but notice even in the midst of this judgment, God says, he reminds in the midst of the judgment, he remembers, he reminds them of the sure promise that in the future he will settle them in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. Amazing. God, again, it's, it's the revealing of God's heart that he doesn't take joy in judging his people. He doesn't take joy in disciplining or pouring out his wrath. He wants to pour out his love and his mercy upon his people. And we should take note that God will be faithful to all his promises. And in the end, we will see all his people settled. And as we've learned in Zechariah, the cities of Judah uh, flourishing. And that will take place certainly in the millennium under the reign of Christ. And then in the new earth and the new heavens. And so God uh, brings forward the charge. And, uh, but again, he makes a call to repentance in part through again reminding of the promise and then God also brings forward the evidence of his faithfulness in verse 10 I have spoken to the prophets and I made visions abound and by the hands of the prophets I gave parables God spoke to his people again and again and again Zechariah chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 brought this forward God sent prophet after prophet after prophet God has been faithful God made visions abound. No one can say God wasn't clear enough. No one can say God should have, you know, somehow made it clear. Same with us. I mean, of all people, we who are blessed with the Bible in our own language, we not only have the Old Covenant, Old Testament scriptures, we have the New Testament scriptures, we have resources galore. Who can say that somehow God has not revealed himself to us or told us the way of the gospel? So God has been utterly faithful. And as for the sin in in Ephraim, God says, verse 11, is there wickedness in Gilead? Gilead would be far to the east, the eastern, across the Jordan, it would be the far eastern border of of Israel in the north, from Gilead to Gilgal. Do you hear the little bit of the 
the gaga, there's, there's a little bit of indication of the poetry. Again, if we, if we knew Hebrew, if we could read Hebrew, if we could speak Hebrew, we'd pick up a more of the poetic uh, aspects of this chapter. But from Gilead in the east, the outer reaches, to Gilgal, which was at the heart of the place. Remember when they came across and Joshua set up stones at Gilgal? Testimony of God's faithfulness. From Gilead to Gilgal, Ephraim, Israel, has set up idolatry. They sacrificed to bulls. And as for their altars, remember God had commanded only one altar to be built in Jerusalem, but they set up altars everywhere. And, and we, sh- uh, we should, in New Hampshire, here's, here's a helpful aspect of being from New Hampshire. You can understand this verse better than a lot of people in the Midwest. You, you can get this. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you imagine if, uh, if you could go back in time and, and tell all those boys in the early 1800s, mid-1800s, who with their fathers... Their fathers kept telling, son, I want you to pick up that rock. I want you to take that rock with the oxen, put it in the cart. I want you to put it on the, on the wall over there because, you know, the wool business has just taken off and they're building new mills down in the Amiskeg and, and it's going to be great. And, and, you know, this is going to be, we're going to build all these walls all over and we're going to have sheep and sons for you and your sons and your grandsons and on and on. You're going to do great. So listen, you just keep picking up those stones, putting them in those walls, picking up those stones. I know they're big. I know they're heavy, but, uh, but you just keep doing it. And if we could go back in time, we'd tell them, don't do it. <laughs> the wool industry is going to collapse. And we appreciate that there's rock walls, like tens of thousands of miles of them all over the New Hampshire. But I don't know how to tell you this. They don't serve any point, except maybe mark our property. That's it. Trees are going to grow up through them, around them. That's it. And we're going to, every time, does this happen to you? I walk out in the woods and I'll see a rock wall in the middle of the woods. And I think, man, those poor suckers who lifted up those things and put them there for absolutely no reason. They're useless. I mean, they're pretty. But I'm sorry, they're useless. They don't serve any point. They don't anymore. I mean, a whole lot of effort, sweat, blood, and tears, blood and tears went into those walls, and they are futile. Well, like those, like those rock walls around that are pretty, but really are futile, God says all those altars they've built, verse 11, are like stone heaps. Like stone heaps. Bunch of rocks piled up. That's good. And if you've never built a rock wall, you don't know how hard it is. Uh, I... I, I I don't know, I got into me in, in junior high, high school when we were living in Loudoun that it'd be nice to build a little rock wall for my parents in front of our house. And I thought that would look nice. And so I worked on that. And wow, that's, that's kind of hard. And, and uh, have you ever tried to lift up one of those rocks on those walls? I often think those boys must have eaten a dozen eggs a day, eaten half a cow, and they must have been the size of Hulk. Because these rocks are huge. And there's not one of them. There's millions of them. And they just, it's futile. Those altars of old in Ephraim were like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Just keep tossing rocks. God says, that's all your altars, that's all your worship was like to me. With all your fanfare, with all your earnestness, it was like a pile of rocks. Because it was unfaithful. Now, again, God brings forward as a witness, Jacob. He's already done this, but now in verse 12, he brings forward one more time. Jacob, who is now dead, yet speaks. 
And he says, you know, Jacob fled to the field of Aram. I mean, Jacob saw trouble coming. At least he did something. And, you know, he he at least, you know, uh, was willing to put in some time to work for a wife. He he uh, and and for a wife, he kept sheep. In other words, the fact that Jacob uh, toiled and worked for his own good and for the good of those he loved is brought forward. And God is contrasting Jacob's activity first in wrestling with God, asking for a blessing, and now saying, hey, when he was in danger, at least he fled, and God is bringing Israel's attention. You are in serious danger. Ephraim is going to be overrun by Assyria, and God is bringing forward the example of Jacob. Hey, if you had some wits about you, like your great, 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 great grandfather, your, your namesake Jacob, you'd flee. You'd flee to me, God's saying, essentially, and you'd do something. You'd do what you can. And they are dull to the message. Again, God's faithfulness in verse 13, by a prophet, Yahweh brought his people up from Israel. By a prophet, he was kept. God was um, merciful. God was kind. I mean, I'm very glad that God uh, deals with me by his word and not by whips or by other you know, force. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, I'm really glad doesn't actually literally take a yoke and put it around my neck. I'm really glad that in his love and his kindness, he constantly calls me by his word, by his word, his gracious, life-giving word. Well, in closing, finally, God comes after recount in this lawsuit. Remember, he's, he's bringing a lawsuit, and we've heard various charges. We've heard various witnesses. We've heard evidence of guilt, even out of the mouth of, of Ephraim himself, the nation. I don't have any iniquity. And now God kind of ties it up and, and brings the case to a close in verse 14, and then in chapter 13, verse 1. Ephraim was provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord. Interesting, this word for Adonai, this is the only place where this word apparently occurs in Hosea. It's, um, I, I don't know all that's going on there, but interesting that Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is often translated in most English translations. That's his covenant name. That's, Yahweh is his name of belonging. Lord is a little more impersonal. You don't want Yahweh? You, you want the Baals? Okay, he'll just be the Lord to you. He'll just, he'll just have that impersonal role. And, and in this case, he will leave his blood guilt. Israel was guilty of blood guilt. They, th- this is a reference to the, the various laws that God had given his people. Not all laws were guilty of the death penalty, but idolatry and their unfaithfulness, adultery, essentially spiritual adultery, was worthy of blood guilt. In other words, the death penalty. And therefore, the Lord, his Adonai, will leave his blood guilt on him and cause his reproach to turn on him. What a, what a horrible situation. And tonight, you could be here, I don't know, I, I don't, I trust most of you or all of you here know the Lord, but verse 14 is a frightening, sobering declaration 
of the condition of a sinner apart from Christ. Your Lord, your creator, in your refusing to come to Christ, in your trusting in your own supposed goodness, if you keep rejecting God's gospel, if you keep in your self-sufficiency and pride relying on your own supposed goodness, in the end, God's going to leave your own guilt upon you and your reproach will return to you. Frightening. And the ultimate penalty, verse, chapter 13, verse 1, is death. Pride, verse, verse 1, he, is Ephraim lifted himself up and threw Baal. So here again is the Baal. They worshiped Yahweh in the name of Yahweh, supposedly, but they really loved the Baals. And through Baal, he became Ephraim, Israel, became guilty, guilty and died. This isn't this is a natural death. And and there is no man or woman in the second death. Who will die a natural death. Revelation is clear that after physical death, that those who are apart from Christ, they will be raised to stand before God. And they will not die again of natural causes, supposedly, but rather God himself and Christ in righteousness will cause the sinner's reproach to return on him and cast men and women into hell to receive the just judgment for sin. That's not what God wants. What God wants is for sinners like all of us to come back to verse 6, to return to our God. He's our God by way of creation, and he has offered his Son so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ repents of their sin, trusts in Christ and his death on the cross. If tonight you're able to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In other words, nothing but the death of Jesus for my sins. That's the only way I'm made right with God. If that's you, that's returning to God. And for those who have trusted in Christ and in his blood, even tonight is a reminder to keep returning to him, keep loving kindness and justice, and keep hoping in our God continually. And in our lives, then, we can know that as we serve God, we won't just be building rock walls of futility, but living lives that are useful to the Lord. Let's pray. We pray that that would be so, God. We pray that you would help us to respond to this message of old. We thank you that you provide for the removal of blood guiltiness, that you offered your own son, Jesus, for sinners that you gave him for us. I pray if there's anyone here tonight who is not trusted in Christ, maybe he or she, and you are the only one that know that, maybe other people even think, um, think we're saved. But maybe tonight your spirit would work and reveal the truth that there's a need to call out to you. And I pray tonight that everyone 
anyone who's here that doesn't know Christ would hear this wonderful, gracious call to return to you, to call upon you as Savior, to turn from pride, self-sufficiency, and self-righteousness, and to confess sin and to cling by faith to Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, oh God, we're learning how fierce your love is. We're learning how seriously you take our love to you and our loyalty. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. May you find humility in us and may we respond to your word, your gracious word. And and may we learn from Jacob of old and may we not be passive in our faith, but be earnestly serious in seeking to please you and, and receiving your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.